we have to establish that your gut thrives on variety. And this was first brought forward in the American Gut Project, which is the still largest study to date, allowing us to make connections between your diet and lifestyle choices and the health of your gut microbiome. So by the way, the American Gut Project, it sounds like it's only Americans. Actually, it's far beyond the United States. This was a multinational study across the globe. And when they performed their analysis, there was something that popped out as being like quite clearly the number one thing. Um, They discovered that people who were consuming at least 30 varieties of plants per week had the healthiest gut microbiomes. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, hey, veggie lovers. Welcome to another episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. Today, I speak with the very famous Dr. B, Dr. Will Bolsowicz, who is a gastroenterologist and has been on the podcast before. Before I tell you more about him, I want to remind you that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. So if you have concerns about you or your child's eating, nutrition, or growth, please consult a doctor. So Dr. B is an award-winning gastroenterologist, internationally recognized gut health expert, and the New York Times bestselling author of Fiber Fueled and the Fiber Fueled Cookbook. He sits on the Scientific Advisory Board and is the U.S. Medical Director of Zoe. He has authored more than 20 articles published in peer-reviewed scientific journals, has given more than 40 presentations at national meetings, presented to Congress and the USDA, and has taught over 10,000 students how to heal and optimize their gut health. He lives in Charleston, South Carolina with his wife and children. You can find him on Instagram at TheGutHealthMD, on Facebook as TheGutHealthMD, and at his website, ThePlantFedGut.com. And he just recently joined TikTok. So maybe we'll get to see some famous poop dances or something like that. So Dr. B is great, very well-spoken, very knowledgeable, very experienced. So you're going to learn a lot in this episode. This episode is going more into food sensitivities, intolerances, those kinds of things. If you want to know more of the basics of the gut microbiome and why we should eat more plants, check out my first interview with Dr. Will B. And we will link that in the show notes, okay? And his book is called Fiber Fueled. If you haven't already read Fiber Fueled, pick that up. But his new book is The Fiber Fueled 
cookbook. Now you're thinking it's a cookbook. Yes, it does have 125 recipes, but at least a third of the book is getting into food sensitivities and intolerances. So if you keep suffering from these weird, vague symptoms, you've tried different things, you're not sure what it is, you should check the book out to determine whether you could have one of these food intolerances or sensitivities and what to do about it. In this episode, we talk about why the approach shouldn't be to just eliminate everything and never add it back because that can cause more problems. So we talk about the differences between food allergy, food intolerance, food sensitivity. We talk about how common they are, why they're so difficult to diagnose, what the biggest risk is in eliminating foods and not making a plan to add them back. We talk about histamine intolerance, which you may have never heard about. We talk about whether you should be on a low FODMAP diet. We talk about gas and farting. It's really fun episode and we laugh a lot. So you're going to love this episode. I hope that you learn a lot. Please share this with people that you think may benefit from it and have not heard of Dr. B or read his work because his book, Fiber Fueled, and now his new book are among my favorites. I think the information is good. He's very well balanced. He has an open mind and he really cares. He has both the mind and the heart to help people and to do the best he can in this world to help decrease people's suffering. So Veggie Lover, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for coming week after week after week. And if you're new to the show, welcome. It's so great to have you here. I hope that you love it. And now without further ado, let's welcome Dr. B to the show. Dr. Will B, welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. Oh, thank you so much. I'm excited to be back. I think we have way too much fun on these recordings. I remember our, our first one, there was a lot of laughter and a lot of fun. So it's so good to have you back. A lot has happened between our previous recording and now. Your first book, Fiber Fueled, did amazing. Congratulations. So some time has passed and I'm interested just to hear about lessons learned. What have you learned between when your first book was published and now, and how has it affected your journey into writing this book? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, and I don't know that anyone has quite framed a, a question exactly like that for me. So that's, uh, that's says a lot because I've done a lot of podcasts leading up to this book launch. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that there's a couple of things that I learned during this journey. So first of all, the book came out in May of 2020. And you have to understand that from, from my perspective, you know, I don't know how the outside world really sees me, but I'm a medical doctor and I was working full-time, and I was taking call every third night as a gastroenterologist. And this book was like quite simply a passion project. I didn't think it was going anywhere. I thought it was a dead end. You know, I just felt like I had to write this book. And so um, the book came out. It did really well. It was a New York Times bestseller. Now here we are two years later. It sold 200,000 copies. When a book sells like that, the amount of attention that an author receives is proportional to the number of people who are reading your book. And it was quite overwhelming, to be totally honest with you, because like, I'm still working full time and I have a family, but I'm kind of getting bombarded on all sides. And so it led up to a moment where my publisher says to me, we want more books. And I said, I don't think I can do it. <laughs> like, I don't think I want to do it. But People um, were reaching out to me and saying to me, you know, Dr. B, like, I, I read your book, 
I loved your book. These were not trolls. These are actually like supporters, people in my, in my camp. But they said, you know, I, I am suffering when I try to eat the way that you're describing. And this really was not a huge surprise to me because these are the people that I work with in the clinic. And so, but this is, a, I think, a very big deal for the plant-based movement and the community. Because we can't pretend that this doesn't exist. It does exist. And we get ourselves into, I think, a bit of trouble when we allow it to exist without actually acknowledging it and fixing it. Because then we get the, you know, this is just a, like, I'm literally not naming any person. This is a completely hypothetical, but, you know, the influencer person who has 2 million followers and they don't actually really truly understand nutrition and they whip themselves into a, you know, raw vegan diet saying that it's to heal their gut, well, they have a damaged gut in the first place. And that's the last dietary choice that I would make for that person to whip them into their diet. Like, I would never do that. And then they fail. And I'm not surprised that they fail. But then the narrative in the public world becomes, well, I failed because the plants destroyed my gut. The plants did not destroy your gut. You had a bad gut when you started, and it was not a good fit for the way that you changed your diet so abruptly like that. So anyway, Yami, it, it basically motivated me to, you know, here was this opportunity to write a book. And you can't pass on the opportunity to impact people's lives like that. And doing a cookbook allowed me a, a path because there would be so many recipes if I'm going to take on this problem of food intolerance that exists, and this is like beyond just plant-based, this is anyone who's eating food, which is all of us. Um, if I'm going to take on this issue, I need a lot of recipes. I need to build protocols. And that's what was like kind of, when I realized what was forming with this book, because I mean, this is not, I didn't, you, you enter into a journey and you don't actually know what the end product looks like. You just know that you're going to try something. And as I saw it forming, I really became convinced that this was a game-changing book and going to really help a lot of people. And so I'm very excited about it because here we are. And um, as we record this, the book has been on the New York Times bestseller list for three consecutive weeks. And even more important than that, honestly, uh, I'm I'm getting messages from people like literally multiple times a day right now who are saying, you know, I got this book. I implemented the protocol, like especially the histamine protocol. People are like, I've never heard of this, but you described me. I implemented the protocol and I already am finding that this is changing how I feel like dramatically. And that to me is like, as a medical doctor, I know you can appreciate this. You're just, this is what we live for to do things like that, help people. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I think that this whole world, like we've talked about before when we did the Instagram live together, is like, like this huge uncharted territory that very few people are willing to enter into. Because like I've told you before, I've had highly respected health practitioners flat out tell me there's no such thing as food sensitivities. It doesn't exist. And I, as a person who I know for sure, I experience them. I'm like, 
Yes, they do. <laughs> but I know that they're, it, it's hard because it can be hard to describe. And sometimes these vague symptoms that don't seem to make sense. When you first started writing this book, did you intend to talk about the food sensitivities and tolerances, all of these things, or did it just kind of evolve as y'all first started working on the recipes? Well, the time frames, just so that people sort of understand like how this all played out. This was happening behind the scenes. I was, you know, things take place in my life that don't, don't necessarily go public immediately. And so the book came out in Fiberfield. My first book came out in May of 2020. And in September of 2020, that's when my publisher was basically like, we want more books. So I, I said, cool, let's, uh, if we're going to do something, let's do a cookbook because that will be easy. And so like literally, this was my frame of mind. This will be easy. I'll get Alex Caspero, who is my extremely talented recipe developer. She did the book, the recipes for Fiber Fuels, the 80 recipes there. And then there's brand new recipes for the cookbook, 125 recipes. I'll get Alex to create these recipes and I'll have someone take photos and I'll write like five paragraphs. And we'll call it a day. <laughs> and that's not what happens. So, um, you know, in the, in the months that followed, you know, as Fiber Fueled was picking up steam and momentum, this is when all these messages are filing in from people. And I'm seeing that, look, food intolerance affects one in five people in the United States. That's 75 million people. Our healthcare system does not have a solution to this. Many doctors roll their eyes when you go and talk to your doctor about this issue. The flip side is that there, the, the options that are being offered to people, like obviously people want something for this, but the options that are being offered in many cases are not actually validated or evidence-based. And so that's a point of frustration too, because a person may spend hundreds or even over $1,000 getting testing done that like actually doesn't help them. And then they just throw their hands up. Like, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to eat? I'm miserable, right? So I see all these things and I know that like as a gastroenterologist, this, this is my space. This is what I've been doing for a living. And this is frankly my responsibility because who else is going to write this book? So um, I started writing in January of 2021. And I was hacking away on a laptop for about five or six weeks. And then it hit me that I, I came up with this acronym, GROWTH, G-R-O-W-T-H, which could be the step-by-step -step process that I literally use in my own clinic. Like I'm not like changing what I do. I just am describing it using an acronym, letter by letter. That allows people to fix their gut health issues and overcome food intolerances. And when that hit me, which was like roughly early March of 2021, I emailed my um, literary agent and my editor at Penguin Random House. And I told them, I said, I just had a major breakthrough. This is going to become the backbone of this book. And the last five or six weeks of writing, I'm going to have to discard, but that's okay. <laughs> And so um, it was really exciting because I knew, I knew in that moment that I had just, I don't know how it popped into my brain, but it popped in my brain and I'd stumbled upon something that I really felt like this is going to make a lot of sense and this is going to click for people. 
Well, thank you for doing that and for being open to doing something different than you initially thought, even despite the hectic nature of your life, which I know I understand that completely. I have lots of empathy for that. But I do think it's very valuable and important. I've already recommended this book to several of my patient families because I know I have several patients that struggle with these issues. But before we get more into it, can we talk a little bit about the difference between a food allergy, a food intolerance, and a food sensitivity? Can you give us a rough definition of these things? Sure. So let's start off with food allergy. Um, a food allergy is the word allergy people have heard, right? And so like a massive percentage of us have seasonal allergies where our nose gets exposed to pollen and then we get a runny nose. Well, um, the word allergy refers to a reaction of our immune system to some sort of stimulus that is foreign to our body. So like it could be pollen, it could be pet dander, you know, it could be something that triggers your asthma. But in the case of food allergies, it's food. Food that you ingest, uh, it enters into your body, and the immune system becomes active, and there's a reaction. And that reaction could be very mild, but what we really fear with food allergies is that food allergies can be, in some cases, severe and scary. Things like not just hives or a rash, but things like uh, lip swelling, throat swelling, and difficulty breathing. This is the reason why we can't have peanuts on the airplane. And, you know, the second part of why we don't have peanuts on the airplane is like, of course, the person who knows that they have a severe allergic reaction to peanuts, they're not, they're not going to order some peanuts on the airplane. They know that. But the other issue is that with an allergy, the amount of exposure that triggers this scary response could be so trivial that honestly you don't even think that you're eating peanuts, but you somehow get exposed to it. Perhaps you touch it with your hand and it touches to your lips and that's enough. And um, so it could be the most minor amount that activates this, this process. For people who are curious uh, about food allergies, there's specific foods that we've identified that are associated with the vast, vast, vast majority of food allergies. And they include fish, shellfish, dairy products, eggs, uh, wheat, corn, soy, um, peanuts, and tree nuts. Now, it's interesting because if you take a step back, other than the fish and the shellfish part, you know, dairy, eggs, wheat, corn, soy, peanuts, and tree nuts, this, these are the foods that we like are slicing, dicing, chopping and then inserting into formulas for ultra-processed foods. And so I'm not really that surprised that the foods that our immune system is the most confused by happen to be the foods that we like derange the most and repackage as ultra-processed foods. Like, of course that would be confusing for the immune system. Um, so anyway, that's, that's a food allergy. Uh, a food allergy, by the way, is something that like you, you, you can potentially overcome. Uh, many children, actually, they will outgrow their food allergies. But um, if you're an adult and you have a food allergy, it's actually possible to overcome it, but it's actually a very 
complex process that I would only recommend is done under the guidance of a uh, trained health professional so that they can ensure your safety. So it's not something you read a book and go do some protocol. You don't do that. All right. Um, food sensitivities are a category that, frankly, we really don't know much about. It's hard for us to define how common they are. I think it's very clear that they're not very common, meaning like they're, you know, it could be less than 5%, it could be less than 3%, but this is the area that we're talk talking about. We're not talking about, you know, one in four people or one in five people. Um, but what it is, is when your body has some sort of response that goes beyond your intestinal system to a food. So a food sensitivity, uh, in, in terms of how we define it, could be like, for example, the person who gets joint pains when they consume nightshades. So does that exist? Yeah, it does actually seem that that exists. It's just not very common. And not every single person needs to eliminate nightshades. But there are some people that that may actually be a choice that makes sense. So that's a food sensitivity. Um, I will admit and acknowledge that even within my own book, there are times in which food sensitivity and food intolerance are used interchangeably. And that's because actually in the medical world, you know, in like medical literature, that's actually done all the time. And so, but increasingly we are starting to sort of splinter off food sensitivity to be a more defined, you know, adverse effect that's not necessarily your gut occurring in the body. Now, food intolerances, though, are very well defined and um, extremely common. These are the ones that are one in five people. And basically, a food intolerance means that you consume a food and you have some sort of adverse effect. Usually, it's digestive symptoms, but not always. You have some sort of adverse effect as a result of the consumption of that food. And one of the important things, I guess there's a couple important things that separate a food intolerance from a food allergy. First of all, a food intolerance we don't believe involves your immune system. So that's important because that means that it's not inflammation. And it also means that if you're measuring the immune system to try to determine whether or not you have a food intolerance, that actually really doesn't make sense. The second thing is that the threshold that triggers a food intolerance is far more forgiving. What I mean by that is that if you had a food intolerance, there is an amount that you can consume. And it's usually something on the spectrum of, you know, a little or maybe a medium amount, but not like a full serving size, right? Um, so, for example, if you take lactose intolerance, you know, that's the number one food intolerance that exists. 70% of the world is intolerant of lactose. What that means is that when they consume, for example, a, a full glass of milk or a bowl of ice cream, they get symptoms. Um, but if you were to take that person and you put one drop of milk on their tongue, they're, they're definitely fine. But if you take a person who has a milk allergy and you put one drop of milk on their tongue, you may be triggering a violent reaction. So this is how we separate these things is that the food intolerance, which is really the focus of my work and my book, a food intolerance is when food causes symptoms and it is something that is, um, there's a certain amount that you can tolerate. And then the last part is, generally speaking, not in all cases, there are examples where it's not, 
But generally speaking, these actually are things that you can overcome. You can actually overcome food intolerances. Beautiful. That was very well said. Thank you, Dr. B. When it comes to food allergies, we know that there can be genetic predispositions. We see these things run in families along with eczema, seasonal allergies, asthma, things like that. But what about for food intolerances and food sensitivities? Do there seem to be any genetic predispositions to those? Well, um, in the book, I talk about... so. That brings me very quickly to something that I actually consider to be a major game changer that most people have never heard of. Um, in the book, in chapter six, I talk about something called sucrose intolerance. Sucrose is something that um, everyone consumes, literally, everyone consumes this, whether you realize it or not. And even if you're trying to avoid it, you probably still consume it. It's table sugar. And table sugar is pervasive, first of all, in our culture. Um, it's involved in you know, tons of processed foods. But even if you eat completely clean and you eliminate ultra-processed foods, you're like way more perfect than I am, then you would still find sucrose naturally occurring in many healthy foods. And that includes not just fruits, but even some vegetables. So, well, there's a genetic condition called CSID, congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency. And basically what this means is that people, for genetic reasons, are lacking the enzymes to break down sucrose, table sugar, or isomaltose, which is a part of starches. And so this is a genetic issue. Um, it's important because one of the arguments that I make in the book is that anyone who has gas and bloating and or chronic diarrhea, you should be tested for this condition. The test is a non-invasive breath test. So like it doesn't require you to do some invasive thing. Um, the, in the US, the test is actually sponsored by a company and I, I will talk about that more in a moment. Um, but what I'm saying is like the test is free. You just have to get it ordered. And what I have discovered, Yami, is that this condition, which we thought was like a rare disorder, it's actually quite common. There's a lot of people who have this, and they're being diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. And they don't realize that actually they have this condition where they're not processing their sucrose properly. And so any person, my, my, point is that any person who has IBS, particularly IBS with bloating or diarrhea, if you haven't been tested for this, I strongly encourage you to be tested for this. Because if you discover that this is what you have, then um, there is an enzyme that is available from the company that sponsors the testing. It's naturally derived. And quite simply, it will change your life. Now, I have no affiliations with this company. Um, I actually am very, very comfortable with the fact that they sponsor the testing because they're doing something that helps people understand what's actually happening with their body. And if their product didn't work, then it really wouldn't help anyone. But when a person is diagnosed with IBS, and I've seen this so many times, and they're suffering, and they're bouncing from doctor to doctor, and the treatments aren't working, 
the question needs to be, is there something that we're missing? Is this really IBS? And when you discover that this condition that like perhaps wasn't on our radar 10 years ago, when you were diagnosed with IBS, when you discover that you have this condition, you implement the treatment. And I have seen people literally where their symptoms go away 100%. That's incredible. And things like this always remind me of how important humility is in medicine because, you know, as doctors, we're trained and we have experience and, you know, we, we think we know stuff. And sometimes there's things like this that we just didn't know. And then we realize, wow, that's really common. So it's important to be open minded, important to stay humble and realize that as we learn more, we can start to apply that to our patients to help them because it can be very debilitating and so frustrating for someone, especially if they think that they're eating so quote healthy, but they're still having all of these symptoms that are coming straight from the foods that they're eating repeatedly. So that is really important information to know. You've touched on this a little bit, but maybe a little bit more discussion on why it's so difficult to diagnose some of these food sensitivities and food intolerances. And earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that sometimes there are some providers that will order some of these really expensive, fancy tests and it doesn't help. But I'll go one step further and say that it could actually cause harm because what I've seen is some of my patients get some of these tests done. And then they're told to eliminate like 15 different foods. And for a child that's in school, that's trying to live a life, that's really difficult. And I worry too about it leading to other issues and um, disordered eating and things like that. So why are they so difficult to diagnose? Is it just because we're so early and figuring this stuff out? Or what are some of your thoughts on that? Well, in the vast majority of cases, the reason why we have a food intolerance is actually because there's been injury to the gut microbiome. So these are not people who have a fully functioning, healthy gut microbiome who are suffering with these symptoms. And there's a reason why there's tremendous overlap between food intolerances and, for example, irritable bowel syndrome, where in studies, you know, if you look at a population that has IBS, they will claim that 80% of them have food intolerances. I think it's more like 100%. It's just a question of like, how hard are you looking? And what are we qualifying? Are we gonna qualify everything? You know, that they have, that they have negative symptoms from in terms of their food. Um, so, so you have to understand that's, that's where we're coming from is that the, the, the source of the issue or the root of the issue is that the gut and the gut microbiome, which is responsible for participating actively in our digestive process, if it's not where it needs to be, then it can, be, it can become overwhelmed by an individual meal. And the foods that tend to cause the most trouble in terms of our digestion are also the foods that are the best for our gut microbes. It's this big paradox. And, but it actually makes sense if you think about it this way. Prebiotic foods. Prebiotic meaning the food that feeds and nourishes the microbes that live in our colon and results in benefits to human health. Prebiotic foods are also the foods that we actually rely on our microbes the most to digest. So like fiber, we are completely incapable of digesting fiber. So we are 100% dependent 
on our gut microbes for the digestion of fiber. It's no coincidence that when people suffer with food intolerances, they cite fiber as being the source of their problems. This is the reason why. And so um, when it comes to you know, the testing, the testing predates the availability of microbiome research, or it, I'll, I'll talk about microbiome tests more in a moment because we can come back to that, it's more recent, but most of the tests that are commercially available are either an IgG antibody test or a cell-based, you know, sort of like um, white cells are reacting in a test tube to food antigens. And the problem with all of these things is that they, they have existed for a very, very long time and yet like decades, but yet there are no high quality studies to actually support that they work. And my experience is just like your experience. I find that patients, when they uh, purchase one of these tests, they do it because they just want to be told what to eat. And it's an innocent motivation, and it's not asking too much. So you trust this test that you just spent hundreds of dollars or perhaps even over $1,000 on. You trust the test to tell you that. And the problem is, what if the test is flawed? What if the test is wrong, like flat out wrong? And that's what I see. I see people who get confused because they say, the test told me that I have to eliminate these five foods that like I literally don't have any symptoms. Okay, with a food intolerance. If you don't have symptoms, then you don't have a food intolerance. Then they'll say, oh, and like I eat garlic and I feel horrible, but the test said I'm fine. Right, the test is wrong again. You have a food intolerance to garlic. We should work on that. We can work to address that. Um, so when you have these false positives and these false negatives, it just creates a confused patient who throws their hands up and becomes even more frustrated because they don't feel like they're getting anywhere or they just categorically accept what the test recommends to them and then they suffer the consequences of either hyper-restriction or at a minimum, excessive restriction and um, simultaneously continuing to consume foods that actually are inflicting harm or causing you know, sort of digestive symptoms that are affecting their quality of life. Now, uh, real quick on the microbiome testing. So microbiome testing has become commercially available. You can do it at home. Um, there are tons of companies that will provide this to you. Uh, a point of clarity, I am the US medical director for a company called Zoe. And Zoe does offer microbiome testing. But it's also along with continuous glucose monitor testing and blood lipid testing, and ultimately with the intent of giving people personalized food recommendations to align their food intake and their metabolism with their unique biology. It's not a food intolerance thing. Zoe is not a food intolerance thing, and, we're not, and we've never claimed to be, so I have to separate that because I'm not talking about Zoe right now. Um, and we could, you know, we could talk about personalized nutrition later on if we have time if you want to, but there's all these other companies that promise you that they can check your stool, look at your microbiome, and tell you what to eat. Where have they published their data? How come I have not seen a publication come out with their names on it? 
hasn't happened. And this is disturbing to me because this sounds like marketing and this sounds like promises without evidence that it actually works. So unfortunately, in today's world, you can't believe at face value that what a person promises to you is implicitly true. Um, They're not required to tell you the truth. They're allowed to market. And instead, it becomes our obligation to adequately look into these things or to listen to people like you and I who will try to bring clarity to these types of issues. So this is the challenge that exists, is that the microbiome is the story. The microbiome testing is not where it needs to be. And ultimately, that doesn't mean that we are helpless. We just are using a technique called a temporary elimination diet. And that temporary elimination diet is the path. That's how we do it. And that's the gold standard approach for this issue. Yeah, I think that's a really great point because as you've seen, the market for people experiencing gut issues and food issues is really big. (laughs) So there's a lot of people out there frustrated and desperate and willing to pay whatever and do whatever it takes to try to feel better. And then all of these different products and companies are popping up. I see it all the time with all of this testing. And that was actually going to be one of my questions, whether it's something that you felt was valid or not. So I thank you for answering that question. I have this really good dear friend from medical school who I love so much and I'm not going to name because when she hears this, she knows who she is. She used to keep a bottle of hot sauce in her purse and I'm pretty sure that she still does this to this day. So I remember we went to this really fancy restaurant once. We all got dressed up in our pretty dresses and it's the kind of restaurant where the server takes the napkin and places it on the lap for you and then they use this little tool to clean the crumbs off of the white linens after you eat. Of course, I was the one that had the most crumbs, but we were also embarrassed when she reached into her purse to take out her hot sauce to put on her fancy food. We teased her so hard. Ironically, I might be to her level now, but it's with Bernie Wilde's adventure sauce. I never used to like spice, but because my husband does, I've acquired the preference for it over time. Now I put sauce on everything, and I'm so glad I discovered Bernie Wilde's Adventure Sauce. Not only is this sauce so yummy, but it is made by a vegan company with heart. I love supporting great companies that make great products, and I really wanna make sure you know about this one. Bernie Wilde's Adventure Sauce is very unique, so expect your taste buds to be tantalized. This sauce definitely has has a kick, but it also is umami, tangy, and creamy. You just have to try it to understand. Are you curious about this delicious sauce? It's called Bernie Wilde's Adventure Sauce, and you have a good reason to grab yourself a bottle or two right now. My listeners get 20% off their first order of $20 or more and free shipping. Just use the code Dr. Yami. That's D-R-Y-A-M-I. Follow the link in the show notes or go to BernieWilds.com. After you taste it, I want to know what you think about this sauce. Do you love it as much as I do? Go get yourself a couple of bottles of Bernie Wilds Adventure Sauce right now and get your 20% off and free shipping by using the code Dr. Yami. Enjoy! So what is the biggest risk in eliminating foods and not making a plan to add them back? What, why is that not something that we should do? So first of all, um, we have to establish that your gut thrives on variety. 
And this was first brought forward in the American Gut Project, which is the still largest study to date, allowing us to make connections between your diet and lifestyle choices and the health of your gut microbiome. And when they performed their analysis, so by the way, the American Gut Project, it sounds like it's only Americans. Actually, it's far beyond the United States. This was a multinational study across the globe. And when they performed their analysis, there was something that popped out as being like quite clearly the number one thing. Um, They discovered that people who were consuming at least 30 varieties of plants per week had the healthiest gut microbiomes. And so now diversity, like this actually starts to click and make a ton of sense because every single plant has unique forms of fiber and possibly resistant starches and polyphenols, which are antioxidant compounds that like basically make up the colors of the plants. Well, these are the three main prebiotics. These are the three main sources of nourishment for your gut microbes. You know, you could eat your diet, but the microbes need to eat too. And this is what we, they need to be fed. And so what we discover is that when you eat an abundant, varied diet, you are bringing in more different sources of fiber and more different types of resistant starches and polyphenols. And as a result, more families of microbes get fed. When you narrow the scope of your diet, then you're actually moving in the opposite direction. And you're taking you know, a food supply for certain families of microbes And now they are no longer being fed and they grow weaker and they become less capable of doing their job. And what happens is that I've I've seen this so many times working as a gastroenterologist. What happens is that sometimes, sometimes, not always, in fact, most of the time I would say they do not, but sometimes people do feel a little bit better by eliminating foods. And the problem is then they lock that in. It's not a temporary thing for them. It becomes a permanent thing. And what happens is because you have narrowed the scope of your diet, certain families of microbes grow weaker, they become eventually incapable of doing their job, and you actually start suffering from new food intolerances. And you end up in a um, uh, sort of a spiral that gets out of control of negatively reinforcing your gut where you will progressively eliminate foods until you end up as, and this is like, to me, very sad when this happens. People who are on like, literally, I'm on white rice and chicken. And I've seen a lot of people like this. And it's basically this progression through elimination that leads to the most eliminated diet you could possibly have. Um, so, the, you know, the issue here, Yami, is that this is not actually the solution to healing Um, this is avoidance and maybe, maybe temporary improvement in symptoms, but with a long-term consequence, there's no reason for us to take that compromise. It's unnecessary. It's possible for us to improve symptoms in the short term and simultaneously restore function and become stronger and become healthier. And the way that we do this is by treating the gut much like you would treat your body if you were going through rehabilitation. So like, for example, your knee, if you twist your knee, so like out of curiosity, um, Yami, what kind of sports do you like? I like running, weightlifting, cycling a lot. 
perfect. All of those involve your knee. You can't, you can't get by and do those things without having an intact functional knee. And so let's pretend that you, you know, you're, I don't know, uh, running one day and you accidentally step on a rock and you twist your knee. All right. Now, if the goal is complete avoidance of discomfort, you could lay on the couch for the rest of your life and never move. And if you don't put any weight on your knee, you won't feel any discomfort. But the problem is you're not really truly fixing the problem. And then your body starts to suffer consequences beyond the knee. You know, you grow weaker. The other legs grow weaker. I mean, you, I'm sure, have seen in the hospital where a healthy person weighs in a hospital bed for five days. And it's amazing how they need physical therapy. And they were strong, you know, before that. So the body starts to decondition very quickly. And then it affects your metabolism. And then you increase your risk of long-term, you know, uh, uh, negative uh, health conditions. So, you know, alternatively, if we were to take this injury and say, okay, let me get you hooked up with a great physical therapist. And they're going to do everything that they can to like adapt their process so that you don't feel very much discomfort. But we have to acknowledge that there may be some discomfort. But by systematically challenging your knee, and each time you challenge it, the knee actually grows stronger. And then you re-challenge it just a little bit more. And then it grows stronger. And then a little bit more. And then it grows stronger. And when you repeat this, you know, this is what learning is. This is what growth is. This is how we build strength. This is what practice is, right? There's so many examples of how our body is designed exactly for this. And eventually you emerge in a place where this knee you have restored full functionality. There is no discomfort. You have made no compromise. And you're back to running and cycling and lifting weights. And so that's where we want to be with our gut. We don't want to be in a position of um, vulnerability and restriction where we're avoiding things because we fear that they may inflict harm on us. Instead, we want to restore the functionality that we're currently missing because the problem is not the food. The problem is your gut. We want to fix the gut, fix the problem, and get you back to a place where you're able to actually consume this food. And, you know, Yami, people often ask me, like, so how do I know if I've healed my gut? This is the answer. If you can't tolerate a food and then you build tolerance to that food and are able to actually consume it without restriction, you have tangibly, objectively proven that you have healed your gut because you have restored function and you are no longer suffering the consequences of poor digestion that comes from an injured gut microbiome. Wow. I love that. That made it so simple to understand and it's going to help a lot of people because that's the analogy. It's gut microbiome rehab. And just like if you were to break your arm, you, maybe you need a cast for a few weeks, but it's not like you're going to stop using your arm for the rest of your life. Otherwise, your arm is going to be completely atrophied and you're going to have worse problems and you're not going to be able to use your arm at all, right? So if we're understanding that a lot of these problems are coming from a, quote, weak population of gut bugs, we need to rehab them. And it may be little tiny step by little tiny step, but we have to keep taking those steps to get back the function that we desire so that we can eat a variety of foods and not feel restricted. I think that's a beautiful analogy. Thank you so much. 
Well, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about one that is never heard of. Nobody talks about this. When I learned about it, I realized I had it too. So <laughs> I'm going to be one of those weird people that has everything. Um, what is histamine intolerance? And how do you know if you might have that? All right. So histamine intolerance, um, I'm going to start by describing what this is. But ultimately, as we move through this, there's going to be some actionable stuff for people who are listeners. And so, which can be a really great thing because we can like literally start a process here while we're all hanging out. Okay. So first of all, histamine is a natural part of the human body that frankly, we all have. So it's a signaling molecule. I have it within my body and there are histamine receptors in multiple different parts of our body all the way throughout from the top to the bottom. Um, and they're there for a reason. Because when the body is in balance, when histamine is in balance, then things work as they're supposed to. And that's a part of contributing to our physiology. The problem is that like many other things, when we fall out of balance, particularly if there is an excess of histamine relative to what our body is supposed to have, then we can overstimulate these receptors and we can suffer the symptoms of histamine intolerance. Now, histamine intolerance specifically comes from food that is being ingested that's high in histamine. It turns out that all of our food contains at least some histamine, but there are certain foods that actually contain a lot more, and the reason why actually involves the microbes. So not our personal gut microbiome, but instead the microbes that exist on our food there is microbes, there are microbes in our food, or at least there should be, because anything that's alive has microbes. And those microbes will take one of the amino acids called histidine, and they will use an enzyme that the microbes have to transform it into histamine. So the number one food that has histamine are fermented foods. Um, now that includes fermented foods like sauerkraut, but it also includes fermented dairy products like, you know, yogurt or cheese. Um, and it includes some things that people don't even necessarily think is fermented, like vinegar, chocolate, and of course, have to say it, alcohol. Um, fish and shellfish are classic high histamine foods. It's because the fish gets caught and then it goes into a refrigerator and it stays in the refrigerator for weeks before ultimately you purchase it, you take it home and you cook it. And during that period of time, the histamine is being produced by these microbes. So fish and shellfish are high histamine foods typically. Um, and then finally, in the plant space, there's really four main plants that are high histamine. Spinach, tomatoes, eggplants, and, and I hate saying it, but avocados. So those are the four. Okay. So here's the exercise for the listeners. Uh, I'm, I'm going to run through the symptoms of histamine intolerance. And the responsibility of, of the individual listener is to quite simply ask the question, do I have two of these symptoms? And if the answer is yes, then I'm going to tell you what to do. And if the answer is no, good news, you probably don't have histamine intolerance. All right. So the number one symptom of histamine intolerance is gas and bloating. 
It can be other digestive symptoms as well. That includes nausea, abdominal cramps, abdominal pain, uh, diarrhea, constipation, even acid reflux. But histamine intolerance often is outside of the gut as well at the same time. And so starting at the top, you could have headaches, migraine headaches, uh, runny nose, sinus issues, sinusitis, sore throat, dry cough, uh, rapid heartbeat, palpitations, lightheadedness. Skin-wise, you could have a rash, eczema, hives, uh, flushing. And then there's sort of these nonspecific symptoms that um, many people do experience and they don't know why. So fatigue, uh, insomnia, and in women, pain, painful menstrual cycles. Okay, so a lot of us have at least two of those symptoms. I'm not saying that we all have histamine intolerance, nor am I saying that histamine intolerance is the most likely cause of your symptoms. But when you suffer with these symptoms that go unexplained, or like you're not getting better and they're still there, what if this is the cause of your symptoms? And there is a actually rather simple way to answer this question. Do you have histamine intolerance? The way that we answer that question is with your diet. If we eat a low histamine diet for two weeks, and you notice that whichever one of the boxes that you just checked off, if those symptoms radically improve during the two weeks that you're on this diet, that is actually wildly empowering. Because um, we have discovered something that most likely you, first of all, you didn't know it. And second of all, your doctor was probably never going to figure this out. And the reason why it's so hard for doctors with this, the reason why there's not as much, like I have 90 references in this one chapter about histamine intolerance, but I want more. I want more research. And the problem is that the only way to identify a person is to actually have them eat this diet. There's no blood test. There's no poop test. There's no CAT scan. So this is what, what creates a problem is that the system's not designed for this. Um, if, it, if you wanted it to work, you would need doctors handing recipes to patients. And that's not happening. But the beauty of it is, here's this cookbook. And I'm a doctor. And we developed 26 recipes that are low histamine. And by the way, my favorite part about them is that I could serve them to you. And you would never know that I'm serving you a low histamine recipe. You would just say, this is delicious food. And then at the end, I would be like, Gotcha, low histamine recipe, haha. <laughs> you're so funny. You're, you're, you don't just play a doctor on TV, right? You're actually a real doctor. <laughs> yeah. But for histamine intolerance, you can start building back up to eating some of those foods again as well, right? So, yeah, I mean, it's not just permanent. like you're going to have to eat a low histamine diet for the rest of your life. Exactly. I am not a believer in dietary restriction. I don't believe, aside from people that have a clear medical need, such as if you have celiac disease, you need to be gluten-free, period, end of story. But aside from a clear medical need, I am not a believer in dietary restriction when it comes to plant-based foods. And when it comes to histamine intolerance, uh, what we're doing is we're taking two steps back so that we can take 10 steps forward. 
And there's different elements to the histamine intolerance that I kind of break down in the book in more detail. But the beauty of it is you, there's really three main parts to this. How much histamine is in your diet? How much enzyme do you have to break down histamine? And how strong is your gut in terms of stopping the uh, absorption of excess histamine? People that have histamine intolerance have a damaged gut. This is not happening to conventional people who have no other uh, gut-related issues. So these three things we have control over, we can actually modify. We can control the amount of histamine in your diet. We can actually control the enzyme. So, or at least we can boost it. Um, and the way that we boost it is not with a supplement. It's with food. It turns out that when you sprout legumes, specifically green peas, and particularly if you sprout them in the dark, they, I mean, it's a fascinating thing. Nature provides in such unique ways. Um, these green peas that you're sprouting will actually produce this DAO enzyme that your body needs to break down histamine. And so you could like quite simply munch on some green pea sprouts with your meal and improve your ability to process and digest histamine. And the last thing is that if you heal your gut, if you heal your gut, then you can improve your ability to process and digest histamine. And people say to me, Dr. B, how does this diet in your book do that? Because you're restricting foods. And the answer is that don't forget, every single recipe is not only low histamine, it's also high fiber. And so we are fueling your microbiome with these high fiber recipes that are transforming your gut so that you can emerge on the other side and reintroduce these foods. And there's actually a, in the book, I give a step-by-step -step process for how you would go about doing that. That's beautiful. Well, one last question specifically about these different types of ways of eating and, and diets. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you wanna join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community is one that's become particularly trendy and people just do for fun, I guess now, is the low FODMAP diet. So is that a type of diet or a way of eating that you would recommend somebody trying if someone has IBS or gut issues? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, we have data to indicate that people who do a appropriately designed low FODMAP diet and they have irritable bowel syndrome can experience improvement in their symptoms. And also, they can reintroduce the foods that are problematic to them in the future. Um, 
What you have to understand is that there's a separation between the way that this diet was designed, which is nuanced, against the way that it's being implemented in the real world, where people don't really understand the nuance. FODMAPs, F-O-D-M-A-P, these are the fermentable parts of our food. You will find them in, for example, dairy products, that's lactose. You'll find them in uh, wheat and whole grains, garlic and onions, legumes, some fruit. Um, also, you'll find them in artificial sweeteners. The reason that our gut may struggle with FODMAPs is that it goes back to something that we talked about much earlier in the podcast. The prebiotic foods are the ones that your gut is responsible for digesting the most. And most FODMAPs are actually prebiotic, meaning that we are leaning on these gut microbes. And when we're leaning on them and they're not strong, then they can collapse under the weight of the pressure. And that's when people manifest symptoms. It's sloppy digestion. So the way that a low FODMAP diet is being done in the real world is unfortunate because I don't actually think it's bringing benefit to people. In fact, they've studied the effects on the gut microbiome. And uh, the way that people are doing it is that they permanently eliminate these foods. That's not how this was ever designed, and that's bad for your gut. But if you go to Monash University in Australia, this is where they developed the low FODMAP diet. Um, they will teach you the nuance, which is that you temporarily eliminate and then you reintroduce. When you reintroduce, you start low and you go slow and you ramp it up over time. Well, this is, sounds an awful lot like the knee analogy that we were doing just a couple minutes ago. So the key here with the FODMAP diet is to, um, much like the histamines, the key here is step one, to understand your own body, to understand what actually is going on and which foods are being problematic. Because when you have that, now you are empowered. You understand where the problem exists and understanding the problem is the first thing that you need in order to create solutions. And then from that point forward, you have solutions that you can follow. So um, the beauty of the book is that it allowed me through recipes and through protocols, there's both a FODMAP protocol and a histamine protocol. It allowed me to walk people through, you know, chapter by chapter, step by step, a process that they can follow, which is basically like being inside my brain and thinking like a gastroenterologist to heal, to identify the source of the problem, to create a proper plan, and then to follow that plan until eventually you are better. That's what it's really about. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's perfect. And another reason why people definitely need to purchase your book so that they can read all about the growth protocol, that there's just so much to learn from you. Okay, I wanna talk about gas though, because this is a very uh, popular topic. What's excessive gas? And what would be some signs and symptoms that there is a gut issue that's causing gas and bloating? Because 
as plant-based eaters, we're going to make gas. Gas is normal. That's a normal part of our bacteria digesting the fiber. But where does it cross over to like, all right, there's a problem here? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, we all pass gas, except for my wife. She does not. But at least I don't, I'm not aware that she does. But <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> 10 years together. 10 years together. Still got it. Um, so, but like we all, we all pass gas and people who consume a high fiber diet actually are going to produce more gas because of the nature of eating fermentable foods that ultimately that fermentation process is transforming. That is the microbes transforming the food into something better for you. You know, we get short chain fatty acids from fermentation. That's where they come from. So, um, we have to acknowledge that gas is going to exist at baseline. What is like the point at which we have a problem? Well, you know, first of all, I, I'm here to talk about really chronic health issues, not the acute like, hey, I went out and I had Mexican food and I didn't feel well, right? We've all been there and had a bad day, everyone, myself included. Um, but I'm talking more about something that's going on a couple times a week, every week. And you know that there's a gas and bloating related issue when it crosses the line to the point of it's chronically happening and it's negatively affecting your quality of life. And if you find yourself thinking about this a lot, that by itself pretty much is proof that you have a problem because the mind wouldn't drift to this place of acknowledging the chronicity of this problem of gas and bloating if it wasn't actually negatively affecting your quality of life. So this is something that is a bit intrinsic to each of us. I don't know where we draw the line because there, I'm sure, are some people who they're passing a heck of a lot of gas and they feel totally fine. And that's, you know, uh, that, that, that is not problematic in any way. It's not the volume of the gas. It's not how often you pass gas. Um, it's not even quite simply uh, whether or not you get a little bit bloated or distended. What it is is it's like, does this become a chronic issue that's negatively affecting your quality of life? I think that's a great way to put it for people because each person has their own threshold and knows their body the best. But I, I just have to add a funny story, okay? You're talking about your, okay. your wife never passing gas. So my husband and I, we've been together for almost 24 years now, 21 years of marriage. And we started dating in college and we went on this month-long trip with our you know college buddies in our college, we had this thing called Jan term where you just have one class in January. So we went to Patagonia, had this amazing trip. I don't know what was happening that day, but somebody farted in front of, you know, it was either me or Brad. I can't remember, but I remember <laughs> one of our friends, like just kind of stepping back and being like, wow, that is love. I could tell you guys are going to be together for a long time because you can fart in front of each other and there's no problem. <laughs> so 24 years later, still farting in front of each other. So we don't, we both do pass gas and a lot of it since we eat a lot of plants here. So well, and, and what does it say if you don't have a problem with the smell? I mean, this is, you know, the, it, it may be that our microbes are designed to attract ourselves to one another. They're, they're like, uh, not to get too crazy and weird here, but there, there is like some emerging research, particularly in animal models that suggest that the microbes are responsible for producing our pheromones. Yeah. And so like different bodily smells come from these microbes that actually become very important for mating habits. So it's just so fascinating to think about the extent to which this is all sort of involved. Like, why do we kiss? You know, because we kiss and we actually share, they think about 100 million microbes during a good kiss. 
And so, what about like, during a bad kiss? <laughs> uh, if it was the first kiss with my wife, I botched the first time I kissed my wife, and I went in, and it was like a grandma pack, and I'm pretty sure we didn't share more than five or six microbes total. So, but yet she, yet she gave me another chance. So anyway, but like a, a good healthy kiss, a hundred million microbes. You know, they think that it, it may be a compatibility thing that you're actually exploring compatibility and. You know, the, the evidence just keeps coming out where it's like crazy stuff. Like you look at um, two partners, people who, you know, basically not only cohabitate, but they're um, intimate with one another. And we discover that you actually share more microbes with your partner than you do with, for example, your siblings, where you share your, your genetic code with your siblings. You come from the same household as your siblings. You have the same mom as your siblings. And yet you share more microbes with your partner. It's so interesting. It's fascinating. And for me, coming from a world of pediatrics, you know, the same because babies are pretty much in a sterile environment, you know, while they're gestating and then they come out and then we're starting to expose them right away to all of those healthy gut microbes with nursing and touching our babies and being around our babies. So this, it's all super fascinating, all of this research that's coming out. So thanks for taking that little detour with me. All right. Now I want to know a little bit more about you though, since we're getting more personal here, do you have a morning routine? If so, what is it? Um, all right. I have to admit, I am a wildly imperfect human being. And many of the things that I may recommend in my book, it doesn't mean that I'm like literally doing yoga for 90 minutes every single day. What? I wish that I, I wish, so disappointed. I wish I could say I was. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's okay. I lean into my imperfection. Um, I actually am of the belief, first of all, perfect does not exist. It's something that, you know, the human imagination created. And to hold yourself to that standard is completely artificial and you're never going to achieve it because it's never been achieved by a human being. And also, I also feel like imperfect is fun, right? Like you're talking passing gas around your husband and I'm like, that's so hilarious. That's so fun. This is so human. And, um, you know, if we were all the same and we all had the same ideas and the same thoughts um, and we were all perfect, it would be, we would be the most boring creatures ever. The fact that we're different, the fact that we have different perspectives, the fact that we are imperfect, we have to lean into this and acknowledge it and stop hating one another and start enjoying the fact that we're all kind of fun and silly and, you know, all these things. So, all right, my morning routine, just to though answer your question, because I realized I was completely tangential there. Um, I'm a big coffee drinker. And so I love uh, at least two large glasses of coffee every morning. And we have a baby, so my morning routine is a little bit weird right now because the baby is only six weeks old. And, you know, I've been, since the baby was born, I take the night shift. So, and we do that in part because I am professionally trained in sleep deprivation. And I know that my wife is like, it's one of these things where you're like, look, my wife with with a good night's rest is superwoman. And my wife sleep deprived, we're all going to have trouble. So (laughs) I was was wondering what you were going to say. I was like, be careful there. Be careful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm about to step in it. I'm about to step in it. No, she's amazing. And so it just makes too much sense. Let me, let me jump on that grenade at night. Um, But anyway, coffee in the morning. Uh, I usually try to get some bright light exposure early in the day. So if there, if it's nice outside, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, I'll step outside for natural sunlight. 
And if I'm not, then we actually have this light lamp that's designed to recreate similar wavelength patterns to sunlight that we'll set up and myself and the kids will all do it together. Um, I'll have breakfast. My breakfast during the week, because I many times have meetings, is usually pretty quick and simple. So my wife will make a smoothie every day that we share as a family. And then I will oftentimes, I have this like, uh, um, like heritage flake, whole grain, high fiber cereal that I will basically take that and I will combine it with a whole bunch of berries and usually some walnuts and hemp seeds, and sometimes chia seeds, and sometimes a little bit of cacao nibs, and then put some soy milk over the top of it. And um, if I have, I have this coconut kefir that I get at Whole Foods sometimes. Sometimes I'll put a big old scoop of that in there. But anyway, that, that's my breakfast. And because I have sort of a rigorous life where I'm constantly going, I've done enough sampling to discover that when I have a good, healthy, plant-based breakfast, I clearly perform better throughout the day. So do that. Then usually it's like, who knows? I might be recording with you. I might be uh, doing Instagram Live. I might be in a meeting with, with Zoe. Um, like, you know, already today, I've done a little bit of all of these things. And um, so every day is a little bit different. But then making space for lunch um, and time outdoors and some exercise. These are some of the things that basically are like required for me to include at some point during my day. I love it. And I, I love that you admit that you're human because no, we're not robots and we don't want to be robots. And like you said, that would be really boring. It's just really fun to get an insight into all of my guest lives so that listeners do know that you're real people. And it also gives themselves a little bit of grace too. We all know that when there's a newborn in the house, we're just doing the best we can. We're just getting as much sleep as we can, keeping that baby happy and fed and loved and spending lots of extra time cuddling the baby. And that's just a short phase in our lives. You know, It goes by so fast. And then yeah. you're like me when my kids are 12 and 17 and can do everything themselves. And it's a different time for me now. So that's great. I mean, I've been, to be honest with you, I've yeah. been like really enjoying it. You and I are fairly similar in age, I believe. And um, I've been really enjoying it because I'm, I'm much older now. I'm in my 40s. And the first, you know, the first couple times, you just, you're just trying to figure out like how to be a parent. Yes. And we've done it. My wife and I have been through this before. You walk into it and you know, okay, like this is how we handle these different scenarios. And you kind of know, here are the pain points, here are the tough parts, here's, what, here's how it's going to be. But then you say, gosh, this, like, what if this is the last time that I get to hold a child in my hands who comes from me and she literally weighs eight pounds. And she's going to mature into this incredible human being that I don't even know what she's going to be, but it's going to be great. Like, it's such a special thing to have that moment and it goes by in like a couple of weeks. So it really does. Got to savor it while you have it, right? Yep. My older one is a senior now. And so, yeah, I would totally do it again if someone did the nights for me, though. Because 
Yeah. I'm the kind of person that does not do well with sleep deprivation, even though I am, quote, professionally trained in sleep deprivation, not good for me. <laughs> so I'm glad that you're able to go through it. Dr. B, this has been so great. Please tell us where listeners can find you and where they can find your books and your courses and connect with you. So you can find me online. Uh, my website is theplantfedgut.com. I have an active email list that people seem to really enjoy. Um, I, like when a new study that's breaking news comes out, I like to write about it in an email because there's nuance and I want to explore the nuance and it's hard for me to do that on Instagram. So I am also on social media. So I'm on Instagram and Facebook as the Gut Health MD. And I literally last night at nine o'clock at night opened a new TikTok account. And I have, I think, like three followers. So if you start following me because this podcast episode, I will know that you heard me here because I don't have anyone following me right now on TikTok. <laughs> anyway, my name is the Gut Health MD underscore. So because someone snagged my name, I don't know what they're trying to do to me, but they snagged my name. So the Gut Health MD underscore is my name on TikTok. Um, you'll find my courses on my website. You'll find information about my books on my website. You can buy my books wherever books are sold. I always say, given the choice, I love it when people go to their local bookstore and support local because they're just trying to stay open. And, you know, um, so giving your money to your neighbor who has a small business locally, I think is there's something to be said, even though it may cost you an extra five bucks or something. Something to be said for doing that, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's all I got. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Okay. Last question. Rapid fire. Leave okay. us with your number one tip for people concerned that they may have food sensitivities. Where should they start? Uh, start by understanding the problem. So let's not talk solutions. Let's talk, figure out what the problem is first. Because if you know what the problem is, then you can create really brilliant solutions. But you got to be, you got to lean into understanding the problem first. Beautiful. Dr. B, this has been so great yet again. I just love talking to you. I love learning from you. I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. Thank you for taking the time, energy, the patience for helping all of these millions of people that suffer from gut issues and just confusing food things. So thank you so much. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Yami. Have a plantastic day yourself and to everyone at home. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Oh my goodness. That was such a fun episode. I laugh so hard when I'm talking to Dr. B. We always get along really well and have such a good time. But what's most important is that he is really knowledgeable. He knows what he's talking about and he's going to continue to learn. So just know that over time, we're going to learn more things. We're going to discover more things. We're going to keep our eyes on the literature and him as a specialist, a gastroenterologist, he's going to be a go-to expert. But I really appreciate him being on the show. And really my biggest takeaway from the show is that it's important to be humble. It's important to keep an open mind and to learn about these things and to keep searching and keep being in tune with your body so that you can discover what, what might be affecting you. But make sure that if you're eliminating things, unless you have a food, a true food allergy or something that can't be helped by strengthening that gut microbiome, that you make a plan 
to add it back. You make a plan for gut rehab. And if you don't know how to do that, check out his book, The Fiber Fueled Cookbook, because he has a protocol in there for you. So thank you once again for being on the show. I will catch you next week. Have a very plantastic week. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. Mm